Hosea chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 1, um, on page 751 of the Church Bible. The Lord of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of Hodom, and have children of Hodom, for the land commits great Hodom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibrain, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu the, uh, for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel and forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the son of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, You are my people, and to your sisters, You have received mercy. Well, we peek into another one of these minor prophets, uh, as we're doing in this series, just one chapter to try to get a fix on this one, Hosea, uh, chapter 1 and verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Uh, God's people had separated into two kingdoms at this point in time, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And God spoke to both those kingdoms through his prophet Hosea as the dual context of verse 1 there flags for us. And it was a sustained message that God spoke through Hosea. Uh, those kings of Judah and Israel listed out there ruled for a long time. In fact, the tightest stretch that we could put across Uzziah to Hezekiah uh, would mean that upwards of 30 years it was that these 14 chapters of Scripture came to us through Hosea. And so uh, there may well be different oracles from across those long years of his ministry all packaged into this book. 
But the message of Hosea's ministry doesn't change. Uh, in a nutshell, uh, that message is, is, is first of all about the unfaithfulness of God's people. Hosea was called as a prophet not just to speak that message, but to live it out as a metaphor. Verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Goma, the daughter of Diblaim. We don't know who Goma was and we don't need to know who Goma was. The point is this happened. Hosea was called out to live a metaphor of Israel's unfaithfulness by by literally marrying an unfaithful woman. And Hosea carried out that most difficult call, as it must have been. Uh, Later, when you read through the whole of Hosea, as we're doing in this series, you'll discover uh, Hosea actually gives the first person account of that in chapter 3. And in fact, chapters 1 and 3 here are kind of like mirrored bookends, therefore, God giving the command and then Hosea then doing it, uh, bookends around what, what I think is a distinct opening section of this book of Hosea, a section that gives you straight up front the thrust of God's warning and its metaphor that Hosea has to live out, that, that the rest of the book then goes on and unpacks in more detail. So as we look through the start of the book, and we glance even here just in chapter 1 today, we're looking actually at the framework of the whole message to come. Goma functions as a metaphor for the unfaithfulness of Israel, a promiscuous, adulterous, unfaithful nation who had forsaken the Lord. Forsaken the Lord. To to kind of help us understand what God means by that and what he means by this metaphor of of whoredom, uh, we might just sneak a look into chapter 2 for a minute if you have your Bibles open there. So so from chapter 2 and verse 2 where we left off the reading, uh, plead with your mother, plead, God says, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Plead that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, make her like a wilderness, make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers." My lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. There's your problem. God had blessed Israel, but they thought their provision came from somewhere else. And so they pursued other things, other gods. And I wonder to what extent we might still actually be a bit like that today. Where do we think our provision in life comes from? Our own hand, perhaps, might be the God of today. Therefore, God says, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. She shall seek them but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. See, God must discipline Israel, but for her good, uh, 
so that Israel will realise that the world and the world's gods does not and has not cared one lick for them. It has all along been God who has been faithfully providing them with everything that they have. And so their only hope is to return to him. Again, I wonder how well Hosea actually maps across to our culture today. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine and the oil, God says. I was the one who lavished on her the silver and the gold, which they used for Baal. Baal is a false god. The unfaithfulness of Israel is getting clear in chapter 2. They had taken God's blessings and used them to worship other gods. This is what God means in Hosea by whoredom. It's idolatry, worshipping other gods. A necessary punishment for Israel is therefore flagged for their, up, uh, their idolatry. It's flagged up front for us as we come back now to where we're supposed to be in chapter 1. Uh, it's a three-point warning, chapter 1, conveyed by the names of Homer, uh, Hosea and Gomer's uh, three children uh, from verse 3. So Hosea went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Two houses will be punished, says God in verse 4. Jehu, mentioned first in the first part of the verse, Jehu was the great-grandfather of King Jeroboam from verse 1. And as it happens that the house of Jehu had been granted by God to reign in Israel until the fourth generation. So at the time of of Jehu's great-grandson, King Jeroboam, when this word of the Lord came to Hosea, there was just one last generation of the house of Jehu to come. And then his house would be punished, God had said, and he says again here. And it was. Jeroboam's son, Zechariah, the fourth generation of Jehu's line in Israel, reigned for only six months and the house was brutally given to another clan. The kingship went to another clan. Jehu's punishment, by the way, stems from his idolatry. He had been ordained by God to strike down the house of the king before, the idolatrous king Ahab, And he did so. He wiped out Ahab's line in a place called Jezreel. That's the reference there in verses 4 and 5. That's the name of this child that's coming. But Jehu then was also idolatrous when he became king. He removed the Baal worship that Ahab had brought in, but he carried on the worship of golden calves. And so now his house will end says God. In fact, there were 19 kings in that northern kingdom of Israel and none of them were faithful to God. If you read through the scriptures, Jehu was the best of them, but he, even he, was idolatrous and deserved God's judgment. And so the whole house of Israel, therefore, likewise and even more idolatrous, deserves that judgment too. 
And so that whole kingdom is about to end, God says, as Hosea and Goma name their first child. It'll be just like the massacre of Jezreel all over again, but, but for the whole nation, God's saying. And it was. Despite Israel putting up five more kings from various other houses after, after uh, Jehu's line finished, God put an end to the whole kingdom, the whole of Israel. Just 20 years after winding up the house of Jehu, he wound up the house of Israel, just as he declared he would in the second part of Hosea chapter 1, verse 4. That too was done. The child's name, Jezreel, means scatter, which is exactly what happened to Israel when God punished them. Twenty-some uh, years after this warning, they were taken out of the land and scattered across the Assyrian Empire. She conceived again, verse 6, and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name, No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. The judgment pronounced with the name of Hosea's first child upon Israel is made certain with the name of his second child. No mercy. The house of Israel must face God's judgment for their idolatry. Judah, however, would be spared, verse 7 says, which is also what then unfolded. In history, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by Assyria in 722 BC, but the southern kingdom of Judah held firm against those attacks. But there's a strong warning to Judah woven through Hosea not to then follow the same path as Israel. We'll pick up that story another day. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Three times now, and we cannot be in any shadow of doubt as to the judgment required for Israel, for their idolatry. They did not take the Lord as their God. Yet, verse 10, yet... Despite all of that, all of that judgment that, that, that is fully warranted on Israel, the, the exile that's coming and must come, yet, says the Lord in verse 10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. The three names of, of the children here come back, but, but flipped around the other way now. Great will be the day of Jezreel. You are my people. You have received mercy. Because the second part of Hosea's message is about the faithful love of God. See, it's against that context of Israel's unfaithfulness, Israel's whoredom, as he calls it, that Yahweh is faithful to Israel. Against that context of their unfaithfulness, God is faithful to Israel. 
And it's a hard thing for us to make any sense of that, particularly when the language, the metaphor here is, is just so strong. But God has promised something else in regard to Israel. Long ago, he promised something else, and God must be faithful to his word. Listen, for example, to God's promise to Abraham some thousand plus years before all of this in Hosea's time, way back when Abraham took his son Isaac up on the mountain, if you know that story, in Genesis 22. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. That's Hosea 1 verse 10. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Judgment must come upon Israel all these years later for their unfaithful, adulterous sin against God. But every promise of God must still come true. And God has chosen Israel for his purposes, chosen them that that, that through them he can bring blessing to, to people of all nations. And so there has to be a yet in Hosea 1 verse 10. The restoration that kicks off in verse 10, in a place that it was said that they were not his people, they'll be called children of the living God, that has to come, that restoration, despite Israel's idolatry against God, because God must be faithful to his word. Some of these people, therefore, must be saved. The more elaborate chapter 2 that we uh, looked at before goes on to unpack uh, this part of Hosea as well, this stunning turnaround of of restoration uh, right after the the promise of of punishment and being stripped bare and and scattered, as we saw. Look at the sudden change, if you've got your Bible there, in chapter 2 and verse 14, uh, and the tender voice of God. Therefore, behold, I will allure her bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her her vineyards, make the the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Restoration on a a global, glorious, cosmic scale foretold through Hosea. In line with God's uh, former promise through Abraham, uh, the New Testament explicitly interprets this restoration that, that rings through in, in, in Hosea. It's not just an Israel and Judah thing. 
And more broadly, it's, it's about people from all nations being brought into the household of God. Paul, for example, says in Romans chapter 9, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. That is, all the other nations of the earth outside Israel and Judah. Those, Paul says, who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Paul says this prophecy in Hosea is about Gentiles too. Peter writes to the church of Jesus Christ in Asia. Uh, We read this recently in our series in 1 Peter. He says the same thing. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The gospel according to Hosea links us back to God's covenant with Abraham and it links us forward to the salvation brought by Jesus Christ for all who will believe, whether Jew or Gentile. Through Hosea, God speaks the very purpose of his gospel, to redeem for himself a people. As Peter in that letter goes on to explain, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the faithful for the unfaithful, we might think in Hosea's gospel. Why? That he might bring us to God. Jezreel, popping up again at the end of chapter 1 in Hosea, Jezreel can also mean to scatter positively, as in sowing seed. And God is now generously sowing his gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ who died for our sins. He's sowing that gospel to the ends of the earth. So hear that gospel this day if you have not yet heard it and put your trust in this God. He has paid for your unfaithfulness, the righteous for the unrighteous, for this very reason, to bring you to him. Everyone who hears this and believes, whether they're from Israel or Judah or or any of the other various nations on this green earth, all who repent and trust in Jesus will be saved into God's people forever. Because God is sowing his glorious gospel all through the earth and great will be the day of Jezreel. As we sit here then under that gospel, brothers and sisters, that that, that the righteous Christ suffered for the unrighteous to, to bring us to God, I think we're meant to read Hosea through Gomer's eyes. Hosea plays the part of God in the metaphor, but but we, friends, are are the promiscuous and unfaithful woman, and we should not receive mercy. And yet Hosea shows us how faithful God is to his promises, the faithful love that he has for us, therefore to, to, to grant us mercy nevertheless. So Hosea is a really good book, I reckon, for for unbelievers to read. Unbelievers who who might want to, but but haven't yet come to God. Because the enemy, uh, the the adversary, the accuser out there likes to whisper into unbelieving ears, God does not care for the likes of you. 
Sure, he may be loving and merciful and all those things, whatever and etc., but not towards someone as unfaithful as you've been. Yes, he's, he's gathering together a people, but he would never betroth himself to an unclean whore like you. The devil must hate this book of Hosea because it calls out his lie. The truth is, all of us have been unfaithful to God at various times in our life and in different ways. But though people are unfaithful, God will always be faithful to his word. And he has promised to save for himself who? Some of those unfaithful people. To love them, to bind them to himself, to renew them until they come to love him and learn to be faithful to him in return. See, it's against that context of of what we have variably said and done that, that God reveals himself to be so loving, so forgiving, so faithful to his word. His word is sure and true. So we have to process this. The righteous suffered for the unrighteous to bring us to God. The enemy, though, wants to put fear into people so that they won't come to God, so that they'll pursue other things instead, to have them think that their hope of salvation, to have them think that their provision in life, too, must come from someplace else. This is idolatry. This is what it is to live unfaithfully to God. That's why the devil whispers such lies. Tries to keep us as whores. But hear the gospel, the sweet gospel according to Hosea. God wants us to come to him. He will have mercy. He will forgive. He will save. And then he will provide, he will bless, he will renew. God wants to redeem sinners and bind them to him. And he will honour his covenant promise because God is a faithful God. Hosea is a really good book too, I think, for believers to read. So brothers and sisters, when you read through Hosea, you'll read of idolatry through those 14 chapters. And fair warning, therefore, that whore word too, 20-something times. That's what it's like, God says, when we glorify other things instead of him. And so as we read, Hosea should ask us, in what ways have we been unfaithful to God? In what ways, we might wonder, were we idolatrous before God saved us and called us to himself? Some people look back on their lives and reflect and think, well, they were always good with God. God chose them because they were worth choosing. But that would leave God showing them no more love or mercy than a vending machine or something. The truth is, our salvation exalts him and his faithful love to us. In what ways, we might then wonder, are we still being unfaithful? Maybe we've even become a little bit idolatrous as we continue to live under God's good provision in our lives, so settled and comfortable in his blessings that we just start slowly forgetting about him. 
that's what happened in ancient Israel here in Hosea's day. And so shouldn't we be on our guard that, that we're not doing the same thing? Surely we are just as human as they were? See, as much as Hosea shows us the faithful love of God and, and casts a great spotlight on our own unfaithfulness to him, that the message of Hosea also then allures us, as God put it in, in chapter 2 there in verse 14. It allures us. He brings us into a place of faithfulness to our faithful God. We hear the wonderful, faithful love of God for sinners like us and it starts to put a new heart, a new desire in us that that we would uh, turn and and look to be more faithful now as we more and more learn to love our God. It's it's the natural flow on, the inevitable flow on of being saved by God. He now starts transforming us into a respectable bride. Isn't that a lovely metaphor that the scripture uses, this language of Jesus' church being his bride? That's what he's doing in Hosea, transforming us. Hosea actually reminds me of Jesus' parable of the wedding banquet, if you know that parable. God brings to himself a people to be his people. And when he brings them, they be as unworthy as unworthy can be. But having saved them, he also begins cleaning them up ready for the wedding banquet when it comes. It's a very hard metaphor that we first hit in Hosea, no question, the adulterous whore. It's hard to keep reading it, I tell you. But, but doesn't it then make all the more beautiful, all the more powerful, that second great metaphor, the image of us now being God's bride? Oh, it's beautiful. Of course this metaphor in Hosea should convict us and make us want renewal now, that we would want him to adorn us before the big day. Surely we want to become faithful now in in our response to what God has done. He so graciously brought us to himself to, to be his bride, so loved us towards this that he died for our sins so that we can be restored into this beautiful, glorious new relationship with him. Surely if we've come into that gospel truth, we'd now be searching our lives, carefully searching our lives to make sure we're not eyeing off some other God or uh, following some other belief system or chasing after any other hope nor that we would fall into thinking that that anything that we have in life comes from any other source but from the hand of our one almighty and faithful God. We need to cleave to him as a faithful wife would cleave to her husband and bring no other desire into this precious relationship we now have with our God. So we've got the honesty to see ourselves as Goma as we read through Hosea. We should also read it and reflect on God and what this would be like through his eyes. A lot of people think that God is harsh or distant or uncaring. Read through Hosea later and see for yourself the woven story that it is of unfaithful people but a wonderfully faithful God. Read it and hear of the grief that he bears over our whoredom against him for other gods that we keep creating in our life. And yet hear of his soft and and gentle, tender promise 
not just his corrective warning and discipline to bring us back to our senses and back to him, but so too of his, his just sheer unbridled love for us. Love that's unfathomably patient with us, isn't it? So forgiving of us, so forgiving of an adulterous people like you and I. Read of the God in Hosea who will make us clean and new. Because with that truth of the faithful love of God, we also have the promise of God to bring faithfulness into our hearts too now. And he who is faithful will do that too. Whatever you've done, however you see yourself, whatever your story may be, hear the promise today of the ever-faithful love of God who uh, wants this for all who will come and fall at his feet, such as Hosea chapter 2 and verse 19, if I can go back there as we close. God says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Come to him. Let him be your loving God and be of his people forever. This is his promise. I hope you enjoy reading through Hosea in the week. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you as always for your scripture. As we open up Hosea, we see right away a very difficult ministry for this prophet and a very difficult and unpleasant metaphor for us. Help us not to get lost in that metaphor, nor to get lost in our own unfaithfulness, Lord. Help us rather to read your word and to be found by it. Lead us deeper into your glorious gospel and and deeper into your faithfulness towards us. Thank you for being such a faithful God. Thank you for overlooking our unfaithfulness by taking our sin upon your cross as you did, carrying so faithfully our burden to bring us to you, to be your people forever. Thank you for your faithful love. And in that love, please now make us new. Make us a faithful people for you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.